You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Peter, where we are continuing in our study of this letter of Peter, this church, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And... Um, we have come to the fourth chapter, one more chapter to go, and we'll be done, probably a month and a half or so. You know, we live in a day where it seems more common than ever for someone to fall away from faithfully following the Lord, fall away from the Christian life, or depart from it all together. Hardly a month goes by and I don't hear another story of some well-known person that just decided one morning I'm not a Christian anymore. Those departing, they call it deconstruction. I think that's just a nice way of saying it. The Bible calls it abandoning the faith. And what's really alarming about this trend is it seems to be taking place not among new believers, but among those who have been Christians forever, those who seem to have been or that we uh, presume to be well-versed in, in Scripture, mature Christians, even leaders. We, us- we usually hear about this when it's the high-profile Christian that deconstructs, but it's happening quite often, too, among not-so-famous Christians, everyday believers. You know, the New Testament said this would happen in the last days. But it's still disturbing still hard for us really to accept. And I think one reason behind that is when it happens to someone we know, somebody who we have considered spiritually mature, someone who has benefited us in our our Christian life, we subconsciously wonder, how could that happen to that person? I mean, that person? Really? And of course, then that leads to you know, the secondary kind of question or the things that we wondered if it happened to them. I mean, could it happen to me? And in addition to people falling away from the faith or abandoning the faith altogether, there's a third problem that has led to really the increase of the first two, and that's a watering down of the faith. So we have the falling away, the abandoning, and also the watering down of the faith. The whole idea of what it means to be a Christian has been lowered over and over and over over the last two decades by pragmatists who try to make Christianity more acceptable and attractive to non-believers. And they've done that so much so, and it's such a a widely held philosophy, that right now it's hard to tell a believer from an unbeliever. And all the polls, all the stats, all the posters will tell you that. There's very little difference between the way a a non-believer lives and a believer lives. Why? Because we have watered this thing down where you can hardly recognize a Christian anymore. And this downgraded version of Christianity has, has really weakened Christians, and it's made them easy targets for Satan. So the question then is, how can I know... How can I know that under the pressure, under certain circumstances, under adversity, that that I won't fall away, that I won't abandon the faith, that I won't be tempted to water it down so I can just live any way I want to and still call myself a Christian? How do I know that I won't succumb to that deception? And this is what Peter is addressing in in chapter 4. He's writing about how to live for God through all the difficulties and trials of life in a way that you are consistent, in a way that you are faithful in a way that you finish strong. There's so many people that are running a race for a certain amount of years, and all of a sudden, I just heard of one the other day. Nearly at the end of this person's ministry, they just took a nosedive. 
How do you finish strong? That's what Peter's talking about in chapter 4. We're going to look at the first part of it this week and then the second part next week. Let's begin in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. And they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you, but they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And it was for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Now, what if you, um, what would you think if someone who knew nothing about Jesus Christ would conclude about observing Christianity? about observing Christians in our country or in the Western world, if we were to give them, like, let's say, three months to attend all kinds of churches, interview a bunch of Christians, binge-watch Christian TV, and then give them two more weeks to thoroughly read through the New Testament, I think they would come to two conclusions. The first one is they would discover that the Christian life is hard that Christians will face many obstacles and opposition, but they can nonetheless overcome, experience fruitfulness and faithfulness and joy in this life. But they would also conclude that the Christianity they read about in the New Testament was quite a bit different from the Christianity they experienced in culture, in the Western world, or in the United States. It would be a difference. They would go, what's the deal here? I see something here and something different here. And if they were to write a report on the whole experience, you well, you know what? it might include a little bit of reproof. They might even pull out some verses like Acts 14.22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Romans 8, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. Or how about Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And if we were reading that report that they wrote, we would probably ask the question of ourselves and of the church in the Western world, is it possible that Christians in the West have drunk so deeply from the wells of materialism and consumerism and prosperity that we would not endure if the persecution cranked up, that we wouldn't have enough? See, Peter is preparing us for that scenario in this chapter. He's preparing us to live for God within an anti-Christian environment. And the first thing he says to us is you need to realize that you're going to suffer if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that causes people to fall away is an unrealistic or unbiblical understanding of what the Christian life actually is and how to live it and what it entails. 
There's a gospel out there that says God's main reason for saving you is so you could live a blessed life. And part of the blessed life is a virtually trouble-free life. Now it is true, when Christ comes into your life and frees you from sin's power, He frees you also from the suffering that that sin causes. That's true, no doubt. But while we're maturing in the Lord, and our suffering for unrighteousness sake is decreasing, our suffering for righteousness sake is increasing because the closer you get to God, the closer you walk with God, the more you obey God, the more you mature and live out the righteousness of God, the more you will suffer for righteousness sake. And, and if I don't realize that, and if you don't realize that, you're going to say, hey God, what's going on? I'm doing things your way. I'm doing all the right things. I'm seeking first the kingdom. What's with the deal with all these problems? And to that, Peter says in verse 1, therefore, here it is, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, the theme of 1 Peter, as you know, we've made this statement several times in the context of this passage, is unjust suffering. Unjust suffering because of faithfulness to God. This is not suffering as the result of sin, but rather suffering because you chose to do the will of God, and it cost you. Christ suffered because He did the will of God, and if we follow Him, Peter says, the same will be true for us. Now, Peter is not mainly referring to Jesus' redemptive sufferings on the cross, but rather Jesus' exemplary sufferings. The example He left for us in life of of doing the will of God and yet suffering be because of it. And since Christ suffered for doing the will of God, so will we. And we must arm ourselves with that attitude or with that mindset. If you don't think faithfully following Jesus will involve suffering, you're going to be easily defeated and perhaps get a little miffed at God. You didn't live up to that alleged promise of a trouble-free life. That's what the preacher told me. Turns out it's not true. Uh, God, what are you going to do about that, right? See, so you get like, now you're telling God what to do. On the other hand, if you arm yourself with the reality of suffering because of your faith, because of your obedience, because of your allegiance to Christ, you'll endure it. In fact, you'll not only endure it, we're going to learn here, you're actually going to become more like Christ. And you're actually, through that, going to become more devoted to Christ. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, that word body is from the Greek word sarx, which is usually translated flesh. And it's used a number of ways throughout the New Testament. Probably the one that's most familiar to us is over in Galatians chapter 5. If we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the And that flesh means your sinful nature or that propensity to sin. And so we use the word that way. Sarks is used that way. But here, in this verse and th three other times in this passage, it is not used that way. It's used instead not to refer to even your physical body. It's used to refer to your life in the body as compared to your life after you leave the body. It's, it's, it's used to... To, to, to refer to your earthly life 
as opposed to your heavenly life, your life in this body, your natural life, these days that you have on the earth. And perhaps that's why the NIV translates sarks in verse 2 as earthly life. So, this suffering of Christ in verse 1 is referring to the suffering that he endured during his entire earthly life for obeying his Father. He suffered because he constantly chose to do the will of God. And doing the will of God and knowing that, doing that, and knowing that his obedience would be greatly, greatly opposed by sinful, fallen humanity and the devil. Nonetheless, he did it. He did it with resolve. And what Peter is saying is arm yourself with that same resolve that Christ had. That's what this verse is saying. Arm yourself with that same resolve that Christ had. Don't think you can faithfully do the will of God in this life, in this earthly life, without the world and the devil opposing you. The Bible is very clear about that over and over and over again. You have to be ready for, for spiritual battle. You know, the suffering that destroys one believer makes another believer more like Christ. What's the difference? Well, one person thinks they're exempt from it, and the other person arms themselves for it. So arm yourself with the truth that Christ suffered for doing the will of God, then so will I. Arm yourself with the truth that if they rejected and refused and persecuted Christ, it's a possibility that people are going to do that to you also. Arm yourself with the truth that it's better to pick up your cross and follow him than to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Arm yourself with the truth that it would be better for suffering, for doing the will of God, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Arm yourself means more than believe it, but have it ready to use. Have the truth ready to use. It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to know the Bible. It's another thing yet to be armed with the Bible. It means that you have it ready to use when temptation comes. So you have to arm yourself with this Christ-like attitude that says whatever you have to do, whatever you have to suffer to faithfully follow God, it's worth it. Earlier, Peter wrote, but if you suffer for doing good, 1 Peter 2, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Now, that's not a scripture you want to pull out of the promise box every morning, is it? Let's see what promises today. Ooh, ah, nah, don't like that one. Give me a good one. Give me one of those good ones. Give me one of those blessed life verses. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. I mean, you know why this is? Primarily because of the prosperity gospel. It has seeped into so many denominations and groups, and it, it's just, it's, it's devastating. And what the prosperity gospel does is it turns the gospel upside down. That's all it does. It's very simple. It says that God exists for me and my glory instead. I exist for God in His glory. He's here to serve me rather than I'm here to serve Him. It's more about me instead of all about Him. Just reverses the whole thing around. And I know, because I came out of that. That was my whole background growing up as a young believer. I was well-versed. But then I started reading the verses of the Bible. Not just the verses that are picked out and put together to formulate 
kind of a doctrine. I began reading the Bible as it was actually written, and I came across all kinds of places like this. What's this? I've never read this before. What's this all about? And it began to reform my idea of what biblical Christianity was and what it really meant to live as a Christian and what should be my expectation for that and what God has provided for that and that there's something even better than they were promising me that was available to me. Now, you've you got to arm yourself with this thing. Like, this is not going to be an easy road. Well, it could be if you just kind of, you know, water it down, pick that watered-down version. You know, don't bother anybody else. They won't bother you. Don't say anything. Never witness to anybody. Never stand for truth. Okay. But if you're, if you're going to try to faithfully follow the Lord and really live out the gospel, you're going to have to arm yourself with this reality that it's going to at times produce a bit of suffering in my life. Unjust suffering because of your loyalty to God. But when you do that, Peter says, when you do that, when you're willing, when you cross that line, it does something in you. He says if you do it, if you make up your, you make up your mind, you make that decision, he said you'll be done with sin. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he certainly, he doesn't mean that you're done sinning. Look at, look at verse 1. Since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who suffers in the body is what? Done with sin. Now, that doesn't mean done with sinning. No, no, no. Anybody who believes that's deluded. That struggle continues until you leave this earth or get your new body. All right? Done with sin means... That when it comes to living life in this body, when it comes to living our earthly life, that you have decisively put sin as a way of life behind you. And the proof of that is your suffering for that decision. You're no longer taking the path of least resistance, simply going along with the values and the norms and the practices that are acceptable and expected in our society that are practiced by unbelieving friends or family members. You love them, but you don't go along with it. You've put the will of the world behind you, and you've committed to doing the will of God, living a life of following the will of God, no matter what. And you can't ride the fence anymore because there is no fence for you. You're all in on the will of God. And the will of God is so different from the will of the world that it's impossible to obey the will of God without getting bruised. Just is. Peter says that when a believer ends up with a few bruises because of unjust suffering, because they chose the will of God over the will of the world, it's evidence that they've put sin behind them. And, it's all, and the resultant suffering of that, of that loyalty to the Lord, actually increases a person's resolve to follow the Lord and to obey Him even more, and to be more loyal to Him. Because what loyalty begets loyalty. There's a momentum that begins in your life. Faithfulness produces more faithfulness. You know, that's what we celebrated this morning, right? We celebrated in the, the, the cup and the bread, God's faithfulness in the gospel. But you know, that's a covenant meal, right? And covenants are what? Made between two parties. 
A covenant is if you do this, I'll do this. Now, this covenant is not that way. It's I'll do everything for you. But somehow, that grace should cause us to respond with a covenant loyalty back to God. When we come to the table, we're celebrating his loyalty to us, and it should motivate, that grace should motivate our loyalty to live for him no matter what. No matter what it costs. So he says here, verse 2, as a result of arming ourselves with Christ-like resolve, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. How long is the rest of our earthly life? We don't know that, nor do we know when the Lord will return, but there's one thing that we do know from this verse. We can live the rest of our earthly life for the Lord, for the will of God. We do not have to fall away. We can live faithfully. We can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not that we'll live perfectly. It's not that there's not a few bumps in the road. It's not that we don't stumble from time to time. But as a way of life, we put the old behind us and we're following the will of God and that's all we want to do. Love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's your resolve, you will hear well done. You will hear well done. All right. The second way Peter says to these, these believers in Asia Minor to, to live for the Lord and to finish strong is you, you can't fall back into the sinful patterns you had in the past. I've seen this so many times. Look at what he says here. For you have spent enough time. <laughs> it's kind of being sarcastic there, isn't he? You spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That choose to do there is actually the word will. So you've done pagan, the pagans' will, the world's will long enough, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. And I'll explain that list in a moment. But first, I think it's helpful to realize this isn't the first time that Peter exhorts them to keep their old life behind them. To not fall back into those sinful patterns. 114. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. First, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 18. You, because you were redeemed from what? The empty way of life handed down to you with the precious blood of Christ. And then there's 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Why? You don't belong here. Because you don't belong here, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, why does Peter um, repeat this? And he does it again, and it's done all the way through all the New Testament. There are these warnings. Don't fall back. Remember who you are. Remember what you came out of. Why, do, why is this all the way through the New Testament? Why is this this thing? Don't fall back into those patterns. Well, number one, because it's possible. It's very possible. It's possible to fall back in sinful patterns. And when you do that... What happens is those sinful patterns then that you were used to in the past that you've been delivered from, but now you're, trying, you're playing with them again, what they'll inevitably lead to is falling away. And then falling away, if not unchecked, leads to abandoning the faith. It's possible. Secondly, because falling back into old sinful patterns, again, also often leads to to, to turning away. And the reason is, is because of guilt and condemnation and accusation. See, what happens is, all oh, one day you wake up, what am I doing? And then there's this guilt, and then there's this condemnation, 
right? And you don't take that to the cross. You don't, uh, you, you don't triage it with the gospel. And if you don't do that, then comes Satan and with the accusation, call yourself a Christian. Who do you think you are? That goes on long enough and pretty soon you kind of start losing your desire for the Lord. And your heart becomes hard. Hebrews says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Don't, don't let it get hard. That's what happens after that. But the third reason that these warnings are all the way through the New Testament is we need to be reminded, you know, that sin is way more powerful than, than you think it is. I am just tired of believers falling. I'm just ticked off. Spiritually, hopefully, sanctified. I'm mad at the devil. And part of this is that believers, you know, people today, they, they, they don't realize how powerful sin is. You know, sin never announces itself, never comes to the front door. I'm here. I'd love to wreck your life. Will you let me in? <laughs> no, it sneaks in, doesn't it? Through a window or something. And, it, and then it, it hides itself from us. It hides how destructive it really is. You know, most people try to try sin management. But <laughs> they do. That's what people do, right? Oh, I can manage this, Right? Most people try to sin management, but Jesus said, unless you violently cut off or pluck out sin through repentance, it grows like yeast expanding in a lump of dough. And eventually, that creates strongholds. And Peter said those strongholds actually start waging war on our soul. And nobody's immune to that. Nobody. Nobody. And that's the best defense, is realizing, number one, your susceptibility to sin. It could be you. The best defense is a great offense, and it starts there. But secondly, you know what? A, a, the, the, the best defense is really a constantly refreshing yourself with the gospel. You know, a, a constant refreshed vision of the gospel, reminding yourself over and over, here is what Christ did, learning about that, the depth of that, the intricacies of that, worshiping the Lord with that over and over and over again to where you can repeat it to yourself, you can preach it to yourself, you get it, you understand it, it's deep in you. And then, the practice of repentance that that vision of the gospel gives to you. You know, when the beauty of the gospel is fresh in your mind, sin, sin loses its power over you. It loses its attractiveness. It looks horrible because he's infinitely more beautiful. You know, when your mind is fixed on the cross and you hear Jesus say from the cross, I did all of this for you, that you may, not, that you may die to sin and live unto righteousness. It does something to you, right? It, has, it gives you great power to resist sin. I remember years ago, the movie, uh, if you remember, The Passion of the Christ came out, and we decided it would be a great idea to take the whole church one Sunday morning. We did. Rented several theaters. And, but before we did that, I thought, you know, I better preview the movie. I saw that R rating, and I thought, well, I better go look at this thing just to make sure before we arrange all of this. And turns out it was just for the violence, and it wasn't gratuitous. It was real. And I remember sitting, I was in the theater, I think I was all alone. I know I was sitting right in the middle. And then there's this one part, and I'll just never forget it. All of it was very impactful, but there was one scene, especially. It was the scourging scene. 
It still affects me, even thinking about it right now. And I'm sitting there and, and I'm watching this thing, you know, crying like a baby. And all of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with the reality that my sin caused those stripes. When I thought, where my relatively small sins became huge at that moment, for Christ had to be whipped and nailed to a cross for even those, and therefore they were not small sins. We sing a hymn that echoes that sentiment. I love it. How deep the Father's love. Stuart Townsend. I wish I'd have put the words up for you, but you're going to have to listen to me sing it. Oh, no, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> you know how, hey, stop that. <laughs> I don't need any encouragement, right, Violet? <laughs> She's going, no, no, don't do it. <laughs> no, seriously. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it all was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. You know, there's no more powerful motivation to avoid sin, to endure temptation, to live for God, then the love of God that would do such a thing for you and I at such an infinite cost to himself. It, it, it is a suffering that makes sin so awful that, that the thought of disregarding it or minimizing it through carelessly sinning fills you with such holy grief that sin loses all of its power over you. But see, we have to keep that in the forefront of our minds. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. If we have to take communion every day, take it every day. However you do it, keep the cross before you and what he's done for you. There's no more powerful incentive to live for God. And another reason that we need to learn to do this, learn to minister the gospel back to ourselves and, and to, to one another. Now, back to Peter here. Peter's warning about the, the danger of sin applies to, to two categories of sin in, his, in the letter. There's the inner sins and the outer sins. Not to leave the inner sins out, he says over in 1 Peter 2, 1, sins of the heart, sins of the tongue. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every evil kind. So you can see this is sins of the heart, sins of the tongue. But then he also, in this second category, focuses on outward sins, specifically sins of fleshly excess, Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. I was sitting there thinking about those and wondering how applicable that would be. And then I thought, well, sins of the flesh. Let's see, the number one internet search is porn. Okay, that's us today. That's our culture. Then I thought about sins dealing with food. We're the most overweight nation in the world. Okay, that's us. So far, it's fitting. 
and then drink. I mean, alcoholism is a huge problem. Drug addiction is a huge problem. I, I read a story the other day about seven estuaries around the state of Florida. They went in and they tested the water. Do you know, in every one of those estuaries are on the state of Florida, 90% uh, of all the fish that they tested had drugs in them. Drugs. Flushing down the toilet, throwing in the water, whatever, I don't know. Now, how do fish get drugs in them? That's a lot of drugs. Americans take a lot of drugs. So this is really appropriate for our culture. I just said all that to say that. So there's something you have to realize, though, about this. Peter's talking to these guys, and he's saying, that's what you used to do. So they obviously did it. What's interesting, though, is how, they, how it was practiced. You, it was, you might think, you know, that it was just, you know, some type of gross immorality. It was but that it was based on something non-religious and humanistic. Rather, though, in Peter's day, it was based on the religion. See, usually you think of religion gets you away from that list. In Peter's world, religion brought you right into that list. In the ancient world, everybody worshipped. Everybody worshipped gods. And they were polytheists. They, they worshipped many gods, many gods. And the veneration of the gods was really integrated into any part, every part of their life, every aspect of their life. And this included celebrations that involved these sins. Now, the gods were such a center of their identity as a people and the foundation for their society that it was considered a civic responsibility to pay homage to the gods in these celebrations. And therefore... When a person got saved, they believed the gospel, and they said, that, no, can't serve two masters. Going to have to say no to that. I'm following the Lord. It really produced quite a, a reaction among their fellow family members, friends, and citizens of whatever town that they lived in. Peter says it was surprising to them. Peter says, you know, they find it surprising that you just don't join in like you used to. You know, that's kind of the reaction sometimes when, when you come to the Lord and, you know, your friends really didn't see it coming, and all of a sudden that day comes when you announce it to them, and they go, well, that was great. I've been praying for you. No. <laughs> Unbelieving friends. They don't say that, do they? They kind of look at you like, really? That's what they did. I remember that. You know, after I became a Christian, several occasions of that, you probably got a story going through your head right now, too. I, I, there's one, though, it's in my mind. It's, 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 the, it's a picture. I'm standing at the end of my driveway of the house, my parents' house. This is like my freshman year in college, I think. It's after my conversion. And, and my, I see my friend going down the highway. He turns around and comes back. And I'm looking at him, talking through the car window. And I'm going, right now is the time. And so I shared with him. He didn't really say much. Kind of said, all right. And just had this puzzled look on his face and drove off down, down the road. The friendship crumbled. He went his way. A few years later, he ended up in prison. I went my way. A few years later, ended up in Bible school. Go figure. That's a small example, though. Some of you have suffered so 
far worse than that. Your decision to follow Christ altered your whole life forever. Just like these believers that Peter was writing to, and the reaction of their conversion involved definitely more than surprise or shock or dismay. It involved antagonism, and that antagonism turned into criticism, and that criticism turned into outrage, and eventually persecution. Peter says here, they are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they do what? Heap abuse on you. And the reason is, as Christians were considered then as being antisocial, rebellious, disrespectful for not going along with the, the cultural mainstream. Get with the program. Why can't you be like one of us? They were seen as arrogant for believing there's only one God. No, there's not. There's all kinds of gods. We've always believed that. Our fathers and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers believe that. What do you mean there's only one God? Not only that there's only one God, but every other belief system was false and idolatrous. If they had just simply said, well, this is our God, you do your God, we'll do our God, there wouldn't have been this. No, our God is the one and only God, and everyone's accountable to Him. Man, you start telling that to these polytheists, and they just went berserk. They were viewed as narrow-minded for their, their code of morality, especially when it came to self-control. And when it came to sexuality and when it came to marriage. See, they were, they were viewed as against society. They were viewed as arrogant. They were viewed as judgmental, oppressive, narrow-minded. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Does that not sound, does that not ring a bell to you guys at all? And in Peter's day, this produced a great deal of resistance to the gospel and therefore suffering for believers. And so Peter encourages them by reminding them, thirdly, here's the third thing. Remember that God's justice will prevail. Through judgment, verse 5, through vindication, and verse 6. There is a day coming. Look at what it says in verse 5. But they, your persecutors, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is coming for everyone. For all who do not believe, and vindication is coming for all who have believed. Unbelievers will see one day that they were wrong about the gospel and that wrongness will result in eternal judgment. And they'll also see that believers were right about the gospel. And that will result in vindication for all believers. And why does Peter tell them this? Well, because when believers are marginalized, when they're persecuted, when they don't get the promotion because they're a Christian, when they get fired because they're a Christian, when they can't adopt the baby because they're a Christian. Oregon. I thought this morning about giving you all kinds of examples, but you've seen them all. There's a lot of this persecution that's growing. If you're a Christian, see, it's going to come to places where it costs us, where there's loss. We're going to have to buckle down and arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. That's what Peter's, he's getting us ready. He was getting them ready. He's getting us ready through the Spirit. When believers are marginalized, persecuted, or suffer unjustly because of their faith, there's always a temptation to fall away from a vibrant faith, to lose confidence. The reason is, is there never seems to be justice, and oftentimes there is not. But Jesus says, there's a day when there will be justice. 
It's as sure as anything. And this justice is going to be universal, comprehensive, absolute, perfectly righteous, and inescapable. Every human being, living or dead, will either be condemned by God because they did not believe the gospel or vindicated by God because they did believe the gospel. And Peter speaks about this vindication in verse 6. He says, for this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Takes a little explaining, which I'll do. The phrase for this reason refers back to the previous verse, the judgment in verse 5. In other words, for this reason, that judgment is coming. Final judgment on sin is coming. For this reason, the gospel is here. The gospel was preached to you. It was preached to everyone, Peter is saying, among these people in Asia Minor. And some of you believed it. And some of those who believed it have died. So what we're talking about here in this verse is people who believe the gospel and have since died. Though they have died according to human standards in regard to the body, they live according to God in regard to the spirit. Death was not an end. Now, why did Peter say this? Well, a common belief in the early church was that Christ would return before anybody died. Nobody was going to die. Jesus was coming back so soon there wouldn't be time for anybody to die for the most part. And it really created a problem because, well, Christians started dying. Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so they began to think, we missed the resurrection. He said he was coming back for us, and if we die, we won't be in that resurrection. We're just going to stay in the ground. I mean, that's why Paul had to write the letter to the first Thessalonians. That was the earliest church, his first church, about 50 A.D., You've got to remember, these people didn't have a Bible like we had. That didn't come about till later. They might have had a letter. They had the Old Testament, but they didn't have a complete understanding yet. And so they thought, Jesus is coming back, and if I die, I'm going to miss a resurrection. I won't go to heaven. Paul says, what? No, 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 no. No, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we which are alive shall be caught up to the air with them. So comfort one another with these words. You have not missed the resurrection. So it seems, though, that the opponents of Christianity used this fear of missing the resurrection to mock Christians. Peter quotes them in his second letter. He says in 2 Peter 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised Ever since our ancestors, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. Where is this rescuer? Peter addresses this fear with a very strong answer here. Christ the judge was preached to those who are now dead. He was preached and they believed. And that preaching produced salvation. And although their faith might be judged as a nothing burger by the scoffers because they physically died, their faith has actually made their spirit alive to God with whom they will be with forever. Just the opposite. In other words, the gospel we embrace is not, is not empty because through it we'll be raised. It's not just this life. There's much more to come. We'll live forevermore. Our faith will be vindicated. From the perspective of the skeptic, Christianity seems empty. What advantage is there to believing in Christ if Christians suffer more in this life, and then still end up dying like everybody else. I mean, why not just eat, drink, and be merry and party, and for tomorrow we die. Why are you guys like this? 
Peter countered by saying that the gospel preached to us and believed by us gives us hope beyond the now. It brings us new life now and the promise of eternal life beyond the grave. And we need to continually remind ourselves of that every single day, all the time. Because we are very good at being forgetful. We are so, it's so easy for us to just kind of center in on the here and now. And we need to live with the reality. This life is a vapor. We've got a mission. Eternity awaits and it's full of glory and an inheritance for you that is absolutely unexplainable. We need to arm ourselves with the good news of our Lord's suffering, death, and burial, and resurrection. We need to remember that He will return. And that all of our suffering will be vindicated. It'll be worth it all. In anticipation of that, Paul, one who suffered very greatly on behalf of Christ, said this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then he said this, therefore, over in 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. We don't get depressed over this. We don't adopt a watered-down gospel over this. We don't fall away because as we do not lose heart. Why? Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light, Paul calls all of his suffering light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The promise of vindication, the promise of glory ought to give us perseverance to fight the good fight and to run the race. But the promise of judgment ought to give us pity and compassion for the lost. Final salvation is coming. And these truths need to dominate our thinking for us to really live for God each day, faithfully, consistently, and not just for a little while or a few years, but for the rest of our lives so that we would finish strong. Finish strong. Arm yourself with this same attitude that Jesus had. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we consider your word, we're, we're challenged and yet we're also infused with spiritual power. We see what's here for us in the gospel. We see what you've done for us. And there's a certain way that we want to live and it's just like you want us to live. We don't want some half-baked version of the gospel. We want it all. We want to live it all. We want to celebrate it all. We want to obey you. We want to live for you. Even if that means suffering, and we know that it does. We've already armed ourselves this morning with that reality. Jesus suffered, so will we. But it'll be worth it all. We count it an honor, dear Lord. An honor to be loyal to you. Because you are so loyal to us. You're so faithful to us. You never leave us or forsake us. We are yours. We are secure in your love. Nothing will separate us from your love. We don't have to worry about anything in the future. We are secure in you. So we are secure in this life being who you want us to be. We're not going to be molded into the form of the world. We're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're going to be done with sin. For he who has suffered in the body in this life is done with sin. They put sin behind them.
Strengthen us, dear Lord, by your spirit, I pray, through this word of God, these verses from 1 Peter chapter 4, and thank you for it. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.